Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. You can find us online at creativityandplay.com and follow us on Facebook. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is urbanist Richard Florida. Richard is the author of the best-selling book, The Rise of the Creative Class. He directs the Martin Prosperity Institute at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he is also professor of business and creativity. Richard's latest book is The Great Reset, How New Ways of Living and Working Drive Post-Crash Prosperity. Richard Florida, welcome to Creativity and Play. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a pleasure It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm wondering if you would pick up on the theme of your new book, The Great Reset, and, and talk about what's the link between creativity and prosperity. Well, I think in in in, in my work, um, you know, going back, Steve, to even before you and I met some years ago, I had grown a little bit frustrated with theories, and we still those theories are still with us of economic growth and development that that say, you know, if you want to grow an economy, either you have to add, you know, attract factories or jobs, and and the better the better of those theories. Then, which, which we're seeing now in the wake of the economic crisis, you know, we have to have better education, or we have to have more high-tech companies, or we have to have more knowledge workers. And I, I just thought there was something more intrinsically and innately human. And, and much the way in agrarian economies or industrial economies, we said that the best economies, you know, tap physical, you know, people's physical prowess, our ability to, to get strong physical tasks done and mobilize physical labor, I was looking for a very simple but kind of elemental explanation about what is really makes us human beings. And when I thought about it, I, I said the thing that really makes us human is not our, our physical labor, you know, which, which people like Karl Marx had written about and other political and moral philosophers had written about. It was actually the thing that makes us fundamentally human is that each and every one of us, each and every little boy or girl, each and every child adult, you know, and in between, we're creative beings. And and so I thought really the, and I think we were learning this in the wake of the economic crisis, that the real key to our long-run economic growth has to be tapping the only real capital we have, which is our human potential or our human creativity. So I think it's it's really the fundamental building block of everything we do, whether it's innovation or arts and culture, and moreover, it's the building block of making a sustainable and functional and prosperous economy and society. Well, how do you combine creativity with work and business, Richard? Uh, that's a really good question. You know, I, I think for so long, yeah, and maybe this is the terrible legacy of the industrial society. And, and one of my mentors and, and role models and idols, a woman named Jane Jacobs, when I met her before she's deceased, she wrote a fabulous book called Death and Life of Great American Cities and uh, the Economy of Cities. Uh, she said it was a legacy of a plantation society, but I think we, we're handed down these these industrial institutions uh which which rather it, 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 if it's work you know it has to be you know according to certain processes in certain places or education and and we've industrialized the whole way we think about companies and in fact created prisons for ourselves and and for our people you know 
And I, I think that if we're going to harness human potential, we have to have institutions and organizations and and businesses that really harness not just people's physical prowess or elemental tasks, but harness their creativity. And you know, most of the studies that we see now, including studies we've done here, suggest that if you want to grow grow a business and you want to grow a high-returning business and make a wealthy country or region, uh, you have to move away from doing routine things, whether those be in industry or in services, from routine road tasks to doing tasks which increasingly people are calling non-routine or creative. And and if you look at the, you know, the skill mix of companies or jobs that are prosperous, increasingly the highest profits, the highest value added, the greatest productivity – and the most economic growth and well-being comes from the places that are empowering their people to be creative. You know, I, I saw this first. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I began to think about this first in the context of simple manufacturing. I was studying 20 or 30 years ago the deindustrialization and rebuilding of our Rust Belt, and I was looking at the companies that were failing and the companies that were succeeding. And I remember going to visit Japan and meeting the, the the manager of a factory in Japan and him saying, you know, the problem in, in the United States is that you, you see factories as, you know, a boss and some engineers and some MBAs. You don't know how to manage people to be successful. We know that the key to our success, and in fact, he said, the reason we'll beat the big three, presciently a couple of decades ago he said this, is because we, we know that we have to tap the, the intelligence and the creativity of everybody who works here, all of our factory workers, and all of the people in our suppliers, and and you know they they created a system called Kaizen or continuous improvement, which harnessed the creativity of regular factory workers. So, for me, it was simply an extension of that. That if it worked well in the factory, obviously it would work better in in office environments or in artistic and media and entertainment environments or in high tech environments. And I think you know we're just beginning to understand that in business. Thank you. You talk about the, the three T's of economic development as you apply these ideas to looking at the role of, of creativity and talent in in community and economic development. And can you elaborate a little bit on what those are and what the, what they actually mean for doing economic development differently? I don't know. You sort of alluded to this in your your first uh, response. Well, you know, I, I was writing this this book that I guess became infamous, or controversial, and actually it was a lot of fun, called called Rise of the Creative Class. Now it's it's more than a decade ago when I started to write it. And, uh, you know, I come from a very simple family. My dad worked in a factory all of his life. My mom my mom took ads at the local paper in, in New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, the Star-Ledger. It used to be the Newark Star-Ledger. I think they just call it the Star-Ledger now. And um, I wanted to write a book that not only commuted to, communicated to scholars of economic growth and development, but, but actually mayors or council people, business leaders, regular people would read and maybe learn something from. My mother always told me as a young boy that I, I needed to pay attention to those infamous three R's, you know, which really aren't R's anyway, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And uh, I thought, well, what if I could come up with something like that, that my mother, that somebody like my mom, who was a very straightforward, simple Italian-American woman, my mom could latch on to. I said, well, three T's, you know, uh, and, and there are three of them, you know, that, that are important both to communities but also to companies. I think it goes equally true for, for companies as communities. If you want to be successful, the first T is you have to be a technology leader. You have to invest in technology. You have to do research on technology. You have to innovate around technology. But 
But that alone is a necessary but insufficient condition. I was living in Pittsburgh at the time. Pittsburgh was inventing things like crazy, but most of those inventions were migrating to, like, to places like Silicon Valley. I said you needed to do a second T, talent. You needed to have great schools, elementary schools and high schools, great universities. But actually what I found, again, living in Pittsburgh, is you could be a place that was producing great talent, but just like technology, that talent could go away. And I remember a funny phrase I came up with in Pittsburgh at the time is, our biggest export wasn't steel, it was the talented and creative people we create. Um, and then, but, but I said there's a third T that everyone forgets if they latch on to these first two easily, that, that if you wanted to understand where these two t other T's, technology and talent, were going, you needed to understand the third T, which was tolerance, um, inclusive, open-minded, diverse places, companies. And what I began to figure out is that whether it was the best companies like Apple or Microsoft or now Google or whatever they be, whatever they be, or the most thriving regions, they were open to talented people of all stripes, uh, men and women equally, uh, people with, without regard to race or ethnicity or nation of birth, uh, without regard to religious orientation, without regard to sexual orientation, family style, able-bodied and disabled people. And um, I, I, I found this statistic by a wonderful researcher at the University of California at Berkeley, her name is Annalise Aksanian, that found that roughly between a third and half, depending on when and how you count it, of those companies in Silicon Valley that we associate with all the great things in America, the Googles, the Ebays, the Yahoos, the Microsofts, roughly a third to a half of those companies amongst their founders was a, an immigrant. So, you know, I, from Andrew Carnegie and Steele to Andrew Grove and semiconductors at Intel to, you know, the founders of all of these companies that we think today are great, there are immigrants. So, so tolerance was really, really important. And, and each one of those is necessary but insufficient. The best companies and the best places do all three of them together. And, and, and actually, in terms of giving advice, what I always say is most companies in most cities do the same thing. They try to emphasize their strength. So if they're a place like Pittsburgh and Cleveland, they have great technology. They try to do more technology. If they're a place like Miami and they're really diverse, they try to do more diversity. And what we were trying to say is you need a balanced portfolio. Uh, you need to do all three the best. And, and, and if you do all three well, whether you're Austin, Texas, or Silicon Valley, California, or Boulder, Colorado, or Seattle, Washington, if you can do all three in a balanced way uh, and succeed on all three, your chances of being having higher incomes and, you know, uh, more value added and more prosperity are greater. So uh, following that, Richard, what are then some of the ways, that, the ways or new ways of living and working that you see that have developed as a result of uh, the Great Reset and um, these different ways of looking at building and revitalizing in business and community? Wow, that's a great question too. Thank you guys for uh, thinking through so much of what we're, we're talking about and reading my work. I think you know, one of the things I was reading today and writing about is there's a fellow at the Brookings Institution, a great demographer called William Frey. Uh, he's just studying now the demographic shifts that have occurred since the crisis. And one of the things he's finding is, is one, uh, even though migration across the United States, Americans are moving less because they're just, they can't, you know, they're their houses have gone into foreclosure. They can't move. They're tied to a house somewhere. But he's finding that the, whatever migration we're having is happening in big cities, 
in the biggest cities we're getting is still attracting the New Yorks, the LAs, the Chicagos, the Bostons, and Washingtons. He's also finding a migration, particularly among college grads and young adults, away from the Sun Belt, away from the, the cities that I that everybody thought you know were going to be the, the boom towns that really were were real estate Ponzi economies and that were only growing because there was a, you know a self fulfilling prophecy of build more things and they will come. <clears throat> when the real estate economy uh, failed, they failed. And actually that some of the older Rust Belt towns uh, that so many people had given up on, not all of them, but but Cleveland and Buffalo and Milwaukee have stemmed their losses. And actually places like Pittsburgh and a couple of others uh, are starting to add, you know, actually attract a few young adults and, and college grads. I think that's happening. I think people want real and authentic places. They want places they can make a difference. They want places that have good jobs and, and allow them to live the lives they want. The other thing that I see happening is is that more and more people in this are, are, are thinking about, you know, when I say reset, I think it's not just a reset that comes from on high and from the President Obama and the big CEO leadership and the companies and the financial crisis. I think all over the United States and, in fact, all over the world, people are asking deep questions about how they want to live and reset their own lives. And I think most people have realized that this kind of hyper-consumerist materialism, this giant gross-out that I think we call the 1990s and 2000s, uh, I think most people are kind of sick and tired of it and realize that it's a very empty way. It doesn't create meaning. Uh, you know, People are just scuttling around to kind of try to buy their identity off the rack, if you will. I think people are, are now trying to search for deeper meaning, and the way we get deeper meaning, of course, is through the work we do and our use of our own creativity and our talent. And I think you're saying, you know, I can step back from this, I can reset my life, I don't have to consume the biggest house. I, I don't need to have a fancy schmancy car. I don't need to adorn myself with designer labels. And I think what people are doing is, 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 is in a way, it's not just cutting back or a new frugality. It's thinking about a whole different way of living. Many of them, especially young people, are saying the hell with this treadmill of keeping up with the Joneses, the big house, the McMansion, the three cars. Those status symbols that I grew up with, my generation of baby boomers grew up with, no longer hold. The car is no longer freedom. The car is going to hold me back. Uh, I want to live in a city, in a, a big, big, big preference for walkable neighborhoods. I want to be able to walk the things and get exercises and see my community and talk to people and not have to depend on a car and be stuck in traffic. I, I want a smaller place. I want a smaller place that's more affordable, maybe that I rent or a, a smaller apartment that I may own. But I don't need all of this space that I don't use. I don't need to be so wasteful. So I see... What I really see is, is a reset that's millions upon millions or the empty nesters that are saying, you know, my kids have left the house. What the heck do I need all this space for? I'm going to move closer in. You know, I may take a train or a subway or, of course, I may drive a little bit to do things, but, but I'm going to think, rethink my life and do what's meaningful to me and not necessarily just live within my means, have a life that, that enables me to use my budget, the money I make, to, to consume more experiences. And we know that in terms of creativity – you know, the, 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 you know, just buying stuff off the shelf doesn't fuel your creativity. It numbs you. But having new experiences, whether that's traveling to a new location or exploring your own city or re reading or, or sharing dinner with interesting friends, those experiences are the stuff that creativity comes from. So, uh, you know, and unplugging from this always on, no, I don't mean just the computer, but this kind of hyper-scheduled always on life. And I think, you know, we're, we're in the middle of that. No one knows how it's going to shake out. But I think this is a big change we're at the beginnings of a big change in not only the way we produce or the way we use our creativity at work, but the way we live. And it's going to take a generation for us to figure that out. But, but boy, oh, boy, it's interesting that we're living through it.
so you've just described some of the what this looks like in in particularly larger urban cities and and how that's been shifting a little bit and you've also um, collaborated with academics and economists around what this looks like in smaller rural communities sometimes and so what's the what's the difference between these elements in the large urban areas and in smaller rural communities where creativity still matters but perhaps might look a little different man you guys are like reading my mind this is so cool that's <laughs> so good being with you um Mike, we just started our semester here at the University of Toronto, and, and last night, Monday, obviously, was our first class. And our class this term, which is on, we teach a class on regional creative strategy. We, we try to teach young people how to actually do this. They have to adopt a region and develop an economic plan for it. And every year we've done, you know, urban. We've either done big cities like Toronto or New York. We've done frost belt hard hit metros from Pittsburgh or Detroit or Hamilton, Ontario. This year we decided to do rural places. And so the young people in our class, the graduate students, have to do a strategy for a rural area to think about its real assets, and particularly its creative assets. And, and one of the things we know is that about, 50, according to great research done by two people at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, by the way, David McGranahan and Tim Wojan and some of their collaborators have done this marvelous research uh, on, on how rural areas could redevelop. And what they're finding is is they're not going to lure the factory back and they're not going to get a branch plant in there and they're not going to grow the way they did by having a fertilizer plant or an auto parts facility. They're going to have to grow by harnessing their creativity. And And what they found is about half of rural communities, counties in the United States, are doing this fairly well. Oh, they may have a college or university they could grow around. They're, they're starting arts festivals or creative festivals, you know, a place like Traverse City, Michigan, uh, up in the northern area, Michael Moore with his film festival, now a food and wine festival, smaller scale economic activities. Uh, they, they may be close to a metro and, and be a place of choice for certain people to live or have a second home. And, and, you know, in some of these areas, it's funny, we think of gentrification as an urban phenomenon, but in some of these rural areas are getting a variant of what people would call gentrification, is people, you know, have a small place in the city and, and need a bigger place for their family or to unplug on weekends. But then in about half of these rural areas, they're really disconnected, they're far away, they're struggling, and they're going to have to, you know, it, it's just like some of our urban centers, which are very disconnected, and, and even though they may be in have infrastructure, they're just not part of this global economy. But I think what we're finding is about half of the rural places are doing it. Not, you know, I was saying last night to my students, I'm not a rural expert. I consume this, and I'm trying to learn more. It seems to me when I look back at the past decade of this quality of place, creativity, and economic strategy, if I really think about it, even though many cities have tried to boost their arts and cultural climate, become more open-minded, you know, have creative policies and programs, and many of those have been successful. Others have not, but many have. The rural creative strategies, places doing small-scale festivals, working on outdoor recreation, whether that's skiing or mountain biking, trail running, ice climbing, whatever it is, mountain climbing, it seems to me in rural areas, for, for the money, these creative strategies, these strategies to leverage creative assets have probably paid off more. Now, I haven't looked at this scientifically, 
But it seems to me that in and the countryside, efforts to you know you know have great restaurants, food to table, you know empower you know attract chefs and 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 have them create a, a destination, uh, have arts festivals or or these outdoor sporting, extreme sporting or whatever nature adventure athletics. Boy oh boy, they seem to have made even a bigger dent in the rural community. So it may be that some of these strategies actually work better, relatively speaking, in rural areas or as well as better as in urban areas. So I think there's something in for all of them and, and one of the things we're gonna to have to think about as we move forward is as our economy, you know, concentrates assets, one of the things we know is that if you want to grow, become more innovative, start more companies, become more productive, those things consolidate and concentrate. That's part of the economic growth equation, concentration, density, consolidation. Uh, it seems to me, and, and, and the development of these spikes of economic activity, we've got to think a little bit harder about how we're going to develop real strategies to keep our rural communities across the board more prosperous and to, to help them out a little bit more. And what uh, I'm wondering what you um, recommend for parents and teachers for younger kids um, before they get to college as they're growing and maturing, what, what would you recommend that parents and teachers, uh, how they would help their students or children to develop within this, all these changes and opportunities that are presenting themselves? Well, now, now you've, you've opened up Pandora's box for me, and I can get on my, uh, my hobby horse or high horse, as my mother would have said. I'm despairing as many of us are at the state of education. And um, on my worst days, I, I've always hated school. I mean, uh, I've always hated it. I never liked it. Uh, not just, I mean, I went to Catholic school, which is the better school choice where I grew up in a working class town. Uh, fortunately, in high school, we had flexible scheduling. The brothers, the Christian brothers, gave us the ability to schedule our classes when we wanted. And by college, I just stopped going. And I graduate school, I, I seldom went. Uh, but I love to learn. So, And when I ask my nephews and nieces who are really bright, uh, they all don't like school. So, And we know from the research that we have is that actually school works best in the earliest years when we're teaching kids basic skills, giving them the tools to learn. And then for reasons we don't fully understand, by high school the whole thing breaks down. It seems to and, and and we also know that what's far more important, what's most important to the development of our kids is making sure that they have a lot of attention when they're little babies. That, you know, Jim Coleman and others who are much more into this, this whole idea of head start and making sure kids are surrounding with attention and love. Like my parents, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of education, but boy oh boy. Uh, they really paid a lot of attention to my brother and, and I when we were young. And, and that early investment in the zero to four years seems to be critical. It seems to me that we just got to stop it, that the, educa the mass education system that we have been handed from the industrial age is beyond repair, that this idea of creating bigger and bigger high schools, bigger and bigger colleges, emulating mass institutions doesn't work. People don't like it. It's, it's not the right learning environment. And we got to start over. And the way I talk about this in the Great Reset is our, what every time we've reset our economy in the past, we've invented new educational systems. In the first reset in the 1870s, when we're moving from a farm economy to an industrial economy, we invented mass public education, basically grade zero to three, four, five, and six, give people basic skills for the factories. In the second reset after the Depression, we added you know, not only high school, but college, the GI Bill, the, the, the state university systems, and all of this. 
and upgrading our managerial class and giving people more basic skills, more human capital. It seems to me that the task ahead of us today, it dwarfs both of those combined, that we need an education system which is not less an education system and more a creativity system. And it seems to me so much of what our schools do is squelch. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Ken Robinson. He and I have become dear friends. Squelch the living bejesus out of kids' creativity. And and so I think we need a system which much more engages people's passions. I'm I'm not a psychi- psychologist of this, nor a neuroscientist, but my hunch is a lot of this is built in, is ingrained. It has to do with kids' passions. And uh, instead of trying to just dump knowledge into their head and, and make them go through this kind of standard group of courses, I think we've got to act on those passions in a very different way. And uh, we've got to reinvent the way. You know, you, we've only had a two-century, century-long experiment in this thing we call schooling, and it, it hasn't been very effective. I think people have always learned by doing, learned by engaging, learned by being involved. And I think we've got to get back to that again. I think the other thing is we've got to give kids purpose. You know, I see so many kids in our society, these teenagers, young people without purpose and meaning. And you know, maybe that has something to do with dropout rates and substance abuse and, and all of the troubles depression kids are having. I think we've got to give our kids some purpose. And purpose comes from finding and using your creativity. We all know this. We share this. From finding and using your creativity. So uh, I don't know. A lot of people are beginning to talk about it. I hope we can have a bigger effect. But I think we've really, you know, and teachers, it's, it's a mistake to blame the teachers. This is the other thing. So many people out there who are criticizing the education system are these, ah, it, it, every single teacher I have met is a person who wants to make education better, who's devoting their life to helping kids, and feels, it, 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 you know, when, in, when, they, when they really get them, that they're trapped in a system that doesn't work. And so I think the mistake is to blame the teachers, and, and the teachers are most, 90-plus percent of them, 99 percent of them are well-meaning and hardworking people who care. It's really the structure itself that we've, we've just got to get to a system that is much more local, much more neighborhood-based, much less institutionalized. And, you know, sometimes I call it prisons for learning. I think we're going to look back at this era, and, and I, I'm going to say something with strong language, and please take it for the way it's meant. We're going to look back in this era the way we look back on previous eras and say, how did we do that? You know, how did we have people working in these fields, uh, you know, working to death in these horrible satanic mills of factories? We're going to look at the way people work today in companies and the way we look at them in schools and say, what were we doing building these prisons for learning and these prisons for work? Why couldn't we do it in a more human way that's a more productive way? And I think that's the big turn that we're going to have to get it. Now, the place that figures this out, and begins to build real learning institutions and creativity-enhancing structures, boy, they're going to get a huge economic edge. So that's what keeps me optimistic. Sooner or later, some place is going to figure this out and get the economic edge that comes with it. Thank you for your passion. <laughs> Thank you guys for extracting it from me. <laughs> and, and picking up on that very topic, in our remaining minute and a half or so, what's your latest passion? What are you working on? What's your next? Well, I'm working on a lot, a lot of things. I'm working on a lot of things here at the institute. But if you ask me my passion, it's it's where my creativity really got stalled, got stalled itself. Um, for most of my youth, and I think the thing that kept me sane in a working class environment, I was planning to be a musician and a guitar player. And I think you know, I heard Bill Clinton say this on Elvis Costello's wonderful show spectacle. It was only when he became a late teen he realized he wasn't that good of a sax player, and he wasn't going to be the next John Coltrane. I, I figured this out earlier. I was not going to be the next Jimi Hendrix. I think my next big project that I'm passionate about is the role of music 
uh, popular music, not just as a soundtrack of an advanced society, but really as a, a way of harnessing creativity, of uh, the whole idea of bands and musical acts as, as startup companies and, and as ways of harnessing group creativity, and the fact that so many of our innovations, not only our business models, but so many of innovations in a knowledge economy come, whether it's you know the phonograph or the 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 i the iPod. So many of our innovations are propelled, or video games propelled by music. So I think I really want to look at the role of music as a key lens into the knowledge and creative economy. And instead of just looking at high tech startups, you know, and Facebook and Google and Microsoft as this, I think looking at popular music and the way we organize it, the markets for it, the way bands and acts are formed, the way technology is evolving, I think it could perform powerful insights. Into, into the way knowledge and creative economies operate. That is my real passion, and hopefully in the next few years I'll be able to get some work done on it. Well, that's great. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and thanks to everybody listening in. Richard Florida is the author of The Great Reset and Professor of Business and Creativity at the University of Toronto, where he directs the Martin Prosperity Institute. You can listen to this show again and previous shows again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com and follow us on Facebook as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Institute, National Creativity Network, excuse me. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you for joining us.